I also on the seats, a lot of you will find little uh, sheets of paper, blank sheets like this. Um, those are for you to write down questions. Now, obviously, we've got an hour together, and this is a huge subject. So time for question and answer in the session will be limited. But what I will do and what I would like to do is gather up your questions or comments, uh, and then I'll try on the website uh, on my own website, I've got a page where I have notes from this. And what I'll try and do is write up some responses to the main questions that are coming through. Uh, but also, it helps me to learn and to understand as I continue to speak on these subjects in future, where folks are coming from, uh, and make sure that what I'm presenting is relevant. So um, just if you would take time to do that, that would be great. And I'll ask uh, Gordon later on just to scout around and pick those up at the end of the rows. So you can start doing that now, or as I talk, uh, please do put your, your thoughts down. Just to say very briefly who I am, um, there's a little bit about that on the screen. Gordon's already done that, including blowing my cover, so I can take my glasses off now and reveal my true identity. <laughs> no, I, uh, if I'm a superhero, I don't know what my, what my super gift is, and you can write that on the sheet if you know what it is, so please do. No, um, I, I do have a number of roles. My primary role is in Belfast Bible College as a, an educator, as a teacher. Uh, and also teaching in various churches, but I have experience as a, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, uh, and as I said yesterday in the, the first seminar that I did here, um, in many ways it's as a father that particularly the issue that we're, we're facing today, uh, I'm a father of two young children, but I know that the world that they're growing up in is very different even than the one that I did as regards these issues, and I'm sure that many of you are here because you're thinking about family, children, uh, grandchildren perhaps, or perhaps you're here because you're involved pastorally with folks, or it may be that you're here because you're personally struggling with what you think or even feel around some of these issues. And I want to acknowledge that up front, that there will be a diversity of people here, and I am sensitive to that, and I hope I remain sensitive to that in the way that I speak. Uh, please bear with me on that, uh, but obviously I'm speaking to, to a mixed audience and I don't know most of you. But I think it's very important on an issue like this that we do think through how we speak and that we are aware that this is not just an intellectual question, it is a deeply personal and deeply pastoral issue for, for many people. So I, I want to say that up front and hopefully I will reflect that in the way I approach the issue as well. So yesterday, if you were here, and I know not everybody will have been, but I uh, looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, and I suggested from that verse that we need sober minds in a muddled world. So we need to think clearly about the issues that we see in a world that is increasingly confused. And the issue that we're thinking about today is a very clear example of that. But as we do that, there are four dimensions. We fear God... And I explained that that's not fearfulness or being afraid because God is unpredictable, but recognizing who God is as the Father who judges. Uh, and so having reverence for him and being faithful to him. But we also love the brotherhood. We love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We seek to honor everyone, and it is honor rather than respect, because honor is stronger than respect. Honor is based on a person's intrinsic value. That is not affected by what they believe or do uh, or say or how they define themselves. 
So whoever we meet, we seek to honor them. And we also honor the emperor and the authorities. And that creates certain tensions for us. And there are four S words up there that Peter uses uh, in his letter to describe how we respond as Christians to a world that is hostile at times, a world that doesn't understand us, which is where Peter is writing into and where we increasingly find ourselves. So we speak, and we need to think about how we speak. We proclaim God's truth. We make an explanation of the hope that is in us. We serve. We use our freedom, Peter says, as servants of God. We shape culture, and we looked at yesterday how that's about humility and submission, and then suffering. At times, we are called to suffer, not for doing what is wrong, but for doing good. And so we follow the example of Christ in that. So if you weren't here yesterday, you may want to get the recording of that and listen in. Uh, You will still be able to follow today, but just to say that's where we've got to uh, for those who were here. So sober-mindedness, we saw this yesterday, is about three things. It's about awareness, being watchful, realizing the issues that are going on and the spiritual dynamic that is behind those issues, that Satan is at work seeking to devour people, seeking to work against what God is doing in the world. Then we need to be faithful. Yesterday I said self-controlled because the verse says that, but self-control is about faithfulness. We need to be faithful in how we think and how we live on these issues, but we also need to be ready for action. Not enough that we know what we believe and what we do. How do we respond to others? How do we make a difference in the world? How do we treat people who are struggling with these issues? So that's what I want to to look at in the time that we have. I want to talk about awareness first, clarifying the issues. Then faithfulness, a biblical vision of these issues. And then readiness, how do we respond? So that's a lot of ground to cover. And if we have time at the end, then we'll have Q&A as well. So clarifying the issues first. Now, I don't need to really rehearse this because you listen to the news, you you see what's on in the media. We know that things have changed dramatically in the last few years. Ireland in 2015 becoming the first country in the world, the Republic, to have a a popular vote to legalize same-sex marriage. Uh, The Asher's case, which has been widely publicized and, and followed. And when it comes to gender issues as well, This is really, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it is everywhere. There is a huge media interest in these issues. And perhaps particularly on the BBC, there's an awful lot of programs talking both about sexuality and about gender issues. But when we look at this historically, the last 50 years have been a period of dramatic change. So this is the 50 years, that's why BBC has done a series, but 50 years ago, homosexuality was decriminalized in England and Wales. So that's really quite dramatic. For some of you, that's within your lifetime, we have moved from a position where homosexuality was illegal. And personally, I don't think that was a helpful position. I think it's a good thing that it was decriminalized. But we've gone now to a point where it's not a question of whether it's criminalized or not, to a point where we have same-sex marriage as of 2014 in Great Britain. Now, of course, we're still in a different place here in Northern Ireland, but this has been a huge, dramatic rate of change in terms of law and in terms of social attitudes as well. And, of course, this is also affecting the church. 
the Scottish Episcopalian Church uh, earlier this year, voting to uh, approve same-sex marriage within uh, their churches with a conscience clause for those who don't want to perform those marriages, but approving it within the denomination. And of course, then more recently still, uh, the first uh, Anglican um, cathedral in, in Britain, in Scotland, that was to allow same-sex marriages. So it's happening within the professing church as well, and also within evangelicalism. We need to be aware of this. Those who, who are evangelicals, who say that we believe in the authority of Scripture, uh, many evangelicals changing their mind on same-sex marriage. And often the story that lies behind that, and this may be your experience too, I've certainly encountered it a lot, talking with people who I know have grown up evangelical, have been in evangelical churches, but where it really hits home often is whenever somebody in the family comes out. And of course, that's understandable, isn't it? Because as Christians, we ought to be, and we are people of compassion. As Christians, we care deeply about those who are close to us. Uh, and whenever somebody is, is telling their story to us, that affects us deeply. But should that lead us to change what we think about this issue? Now, within that, of course, empathy is an incredibly helpful and important thing. But often it is this story, as in the case of this pastor, that his son uh, had come out as homosexual uh, and then he changed his, his view and his teaching on the issue. So this is happening uh, not just uh, in the world, but within the church. So what I want to, to try and do is clarify some of the issues, first of all. And you've, you, you may be familiar with this list of letters. The, the lists vary. LGBT is common. LGBTI is common. Uh, Q and A sometimes are in there as well. So I'll not do a quiz to see if you know what these stand for. Um, but this is the, the, the list. These are what these letters tend to stand for. Now, of course, one of the challenges with this is that when we, when we have a list of letters like this, we're actually lumping together some quite different issues. And some people within the so-called LGBTQIA community also are troubled by that because they say, well, my experience is not the same as that person's experience. And that's particularly true when we're thinking about the I within this, intersex, because intersex which is not really a medically used term, but it's the term that's commonly used, is talking about people whose bodies uh, don't follow what would be seen as the normal pattern of male and female. That's a very small percentage of people. In medical terms, it's called disorders of sexual development. And these are things, as I say, where, where there's something that doesn't align between the, the genes and the appearance of the body. So that usually shows either, either at birth that moment of it's a boy, it's a girl, if that's not clear, or uh, later on in development at puberty, whenever the secondary sexual characteristics don't develop as expected. Now that is a very real thing, and it's an important issue, and it's important that we think as Christians, but it's not what I'm going to be talking about today. And I want to separate it out, but I'm, I'm mentioning it first because this is a physical issue. This is an issue with the development of the body. Now, it raises questions, of course, for people who are affected, for their parents and so on, but it is not the same as what we're talking about when we talk about lesbian, gay, uh, and certainly transgender. These are issues to do with behavior, with feelings, with thoughts, rather than with the body. So, 
separating these things out is actually quite important. But of course, our, our children are living and growing up in a world where the, the, this is a, a BBC website designed for young people. They're being encouraged to ask the questions, am I gay? What is sexuality? It's a matter of how you feel. Do you see that in the blue box? And transgender and gender dysphoria, these are very much things that, that they're being encouraged to think through and think about. Now, I'm going to say a little bit about the medical and the legal situation at the moment, but also then where I think the culture is going on some of these issues. From a medical point of view, there has been some change in the last number of years about how doctors talk about this, but, but doctors are concerned about this issue of gender dysphoria. So they say gender nonconformity is not in itself a mental disorder. If somebody doesn't behave or dress in the way that you would expect for somebody of their sex, male or female, that is not a disorder. The medical disorder, the medical problem is where that is causing them significant distress. And that's what we call gender dysphoria. So this person is actually distressed about this to a degree that it is affecting their life, their ability to cope, how they feel about themselves, their self-worth, uh, their, their hope for the future. Gender dysphoria. That's what doctors would say is, is, is a problem because that's where it's affecting them as, a, as an illness. And the legal situation at the moment in the UK as regards gender is that people can apply to change their gender in law. So whatever's recorded on your birth certificate, you can change that, but you have to meet certain criteria. Over the age of 18, Diagnosed with this problem of gender dysphoria, significant distress because you feel that your body doesn't match up with who you really are, uh, trapped in the wrong body. You've lived in your acquired gender for at least two years and you intend to live in your acquired gender for the rest of your life. So the legal position and the medical position at the moment on transgender issues is some people feel they're in the wrong body but there are two types of bodies. There's male, there's female, and you can transition one way, but you're not expected to move back again, okay? So it's still thinking in terms of male and female, but saying some people don't feel that they fit into that and they should be allowed to change to the opposite, okay? And you don't legally, you don't have to have transitioned by surgery or anything, it's simply that you are living out as, as either a, a man if you were born as a woman or as a, a woman if you were born as a man. That's where things are currently legally in the UK. But the political discourse and the social discussion around this is going way beyond that. So just in on the 23rd of July last month, in recognition of the 50 years since decriminalization, and this is the, the, the government website, and here is a, a graphic, and I'm, I, I kid you not in this, but this is a graphic that is on that government website, which is using the lion and the unicorn. Normally between that would be the royal crest. But on this government website is the rainbow flag, which is the symbol of the LGBT. So there's a very clear statement in that. But the uh, consultation has been issued by Justine Greening, who is the uh, Equalities Minister, uh, Minister for Women and for Equalities, and this is a consultation to remove the need for a medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria for people who want to change their, their gender, okay? 
and she has had support from Jeremy Corbyn and from Theresa May on this. So it has cross-party support, at least from the leaders of those parties. Now, the implications of that are, this is not a medical issue. Doctors should not be involved. This is an issue of personal choice. People should be freer. We should make it easier for them. The, the, why should doctors be involved in that at all? So we're moving to a place where we're saying, actually, even the distress is not really, well, yes, they might need medical help for that, but that's not the issue. You shouldn't have to have that level of distress in order to be able to change your gender. You should be able to do that just because this is what you choose to do. And these restrictions about having to, you can only do it once and you have to stay in that gender. Well, that's not recognizing how fluid this is. Uh, let's leave it up to people. Now, when you start to think through the social implications of that, of course, what would it mean if anybody can change their gender at their own behest without any checks from a medical point of view, etc.? How would society function in terms of separate spaces for men and women? And so some of the people who have protested about this are, for example, feminists who say, well, we have fought very hard for safe spaces for women. But if a man can say, I'm actually a woman, he could take all sorts of advantage of that, couldn't he? So, you know, th there are really significant issues here and where this goes politically, we'll have to wait and see. But that's where the, the discussion is at the moment. Matthew Dancona talking in The Guardian says, the Tories are on the right side of the transgender debate. So here is where it comes from. He says, unlike biological sex, the body that you're born with, gender is a social construct. Accordingly, an individual's identity is an essential part of their autonomy. Now, that word autonomy is a key word that I'll come back to. It's, it's saying that you have a right to choose for yourself. Auto, self, nomos, law. A law to yourself that nobody should be making decisions about who you say you are or who you are other than yourself. So this is part of your autonomy. Your identity is up to you to decide and discover and, and determine. And why should a trans 16-year-old, so again, we're going beyond the 18 cutoff, you see that, which currently in law is there, but why should a 16-year-old require a doctor's permission to declare herself a woman? Why should NHS resources be wasted on such humiliation? It's humiliating for people to have to go to a doctor to have this diagnosis and this label, people should be free. So you see the, the, the story and the values that are there, autonomy, and this fundamental belief that gender is a social construct. It's not a real thing in the sense that yes, your body has certain characteristics, male, female, but how you think about your gender is completely social. It's the way you've been brought up, the toys you were introduced to, the colors that you were dressed in, uh, the expectations that people have of you. Just to say a little bit about statistics, it's reckoned that about 20 in 100,000 people are uh, transgender. In, in the UK. So that's about a thousand individuals. Six thousand, or not a thousand individuals, but two, 20 per hundred thousand. Then 6,000 have, that, that's a survey, sorry, based on, a, I think, a survey of a thousand people. I need to check that, why it says a thousand people. 6,000 have transitioned in the UK. So 80% of those have been men transitioning to identify as women. So it's much more of an issue in, uh, amongst men, but, but it's 6,000 people in total. 
it's reckoned that perhaps about a th 1% of people experience some kind of gender variation. So at some level within themselves, they, they feel I don't quite fit into the norm for a man or a woman, but, but it's much fewer, 20 per 100,000, who feel that as a significant thing in terms of their identity. And this is a really interesting statistic, but when it comes to children, somewhere between 61 to 88% of children who experience gender dysphoria, in other words, these are children who experience significant distress as a child, where they feel, no, I, I, I'm distressed by the fact that I feel I should be the opposite, the other thing. But 61 to 88% of those do not persist into adulthood. Although there is a discussion that many of those, or at least some of those, go on to identify as, as homosexual. But that's a very significant statistic because it's telling us that in those developmental stages as a child, and, and people have recognized this for a long time, that it is normal that people are asking questions. It's normal that people are figuring out who they are. It's normal that your children may have some feelings and even some of them may feel distress around that. But of course, whether we assume that that means they should carry on and that, the reality is that most do not carry on to feel that way into adulthood. And I'll come back to why I think it's important to, to emphasize that later. Now this on the, on the screen is a graph that Google lets you do based on Google Books. It's called an n-gram. And it charts over the history of literature. So all of the texts written in the English language that have been digitized by Google, they, they analyze those as to how frequently a word appears in literature. So this graph starts in 1800 on the left and goes up to 2000 on the right. And the word that they are charting is the word gender. Now do you notice you've got a flat line, almost non-existent, up until when? 1960 it begins to take off and then from 1980 onwards, it's a huge increase. And it's still not, of course, the percentage is still small. It's not like every other word is gender, but it's a huge increase in references to the word gender in English literature. Now, why am I saying that? Because I'm trying to say, look, it's not just that there have been political changes in the last 50 years or so. There have been huge social changes and changes in thinking about psychology and so on, really from the 1960s onwards. So this discussion about gender is part of what you might want to call the sexual revolution that really kicked off in the 1960s. But it's really interesting to say, well, look, gender was just not a word that people used before the 1960s in any significant amount. In fact, the predominant usage of the word gender before that time was talking about languages in male, female, and in some languages, neuter words. So, so that idea of gender, it was, a, it was gendered words rather than people because people talked about themselves in terms of their sex. Now, part of the reason that this changed was that people became uncomfortable using the word sex because it was being used so much to talk about sexual activity as a shorthand for sexual intercourse. So they started to say gender instead. But actually, it was also driven by the idea that started to come in that gender is different from sex. Before that, if you talked about your gender, it was assumed you were saying the same thing as your sex, your biological sex. So I, I'm highlighting just how, how rapidly this has become an issue. 
by the, the, the chart of this word. And when you do this with other terms, terminology, homosexual, bisexual, these words first appear in English in 1892. Transsexual, 1949. Gender, 1955. As I say, that's actually the first time that it is used to distinguish between social roles and your biological sex. 1955 in, in academic discourse. And then transgender in 1965. So again, it's incredibly recent in the history of human thinking that we've been thinking in these terms of gender being different from sex. And this raises questions too about where does all of this stop? Because if I can identify as transgender, in other words, I feel I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, well, of course, other people are saying other things in terms of race. And you may have picked up the story of Rachel Dolezal, who was an activist for, for black rights or African-Americans in, in America. And then, of course, her parents revealed that she was white. And her response to it is, well, actually, the idea of race is a lie. I identify as being black, so I am black. And others, even further than that, the latest headlines in some sense talking about transspeciesism. People who feel themselves to be a cat or a dog and so act that out. Now, I know some of us are... are gasping or, or maybe even laughing at that. I, the, I, and I'm not criticizing that in a sense, but these are not issues, of course, that we should be taking lightly or joking about or laughing at in the sense that these are very real issues for real people. And our response ought to be one of compassion and concern. But I think we have to say, and it's not just Christians who are saying maybe this is going too far. What are we really talking about here? Well, when it comes back to gender, it's important to say that where things are going in terms of campaigning and social discussion is the idea that, in the end of the day, this old idea that you're either one or the other, which is still what the law says and it's still what the medical profession says, even if it allows that you can change from one to the other, that's not really right anyway. This, this binary idea of male-female, is it's more like this bottom picture. All sorts of varieties, all sorts of different people, all sorts of experiences. Everybody's story is unique. So stop trying to squeeze yourself into the mold of, of what people are expecting because it's all a social construct anyway. And so this diagram captures some of where the, the discussion is at and the campaigning is at, the gender-bred person. And you'll see there, there are four things on the little picture at the left. There is identity, which is a question of how you think. There is attraction, who you are sexually attracted to. There is sex, which is a physical thing. What organs do you have? What external and internal genitalia? What chromosomes do you have? And then there's expression, which is the way you present yourself to the world. And the message is these are all fluid. They all appear on a, on a chart from left to right. So gender identity is womanness and manness. And there's different options. You may be very manly. You may be very womanly. You may be somewhere in between. Or you may be agendered, asexual. You don't present as either. 
So how do you think about your identity? Then there's gender expression. How do you dress? You may dress very like a man and grow your beard very like a man. Or you may uh, dress and present yourself very like a woman with makeup and the social expectations of what a woman looks like. Biological sex. And this is, of course, where you start to realize this is very problematic because that's a, that's a continuum too, according to this. Now, of course, it isn't a continuum. And again, we're not going to talk about intersex here, but it, it just isn't. And this is, of course, where intersex people get lumped in and say, well, no, it is a spectrum. And this idea that there's male or female, sure, that's variable. You may be more male or more female. And then attraction, well, you may be attracted to the same sex or the opposite sex or both or neither or some variation between it all. And so you sit somewhere on a spectrum on all of these and you end up with an infinite number of combinations so that I could be, if I follow this, I could be presenting myself to you, my expression as a man, and physically I'm a man, but I understand myself to be a woman in a man's body, and I'm attracted to men sexually, but because I understand myself to be a woman, I'm not homosexual, I'm actually heterosexual, you see? Do you, do you see what I mean? Because it doesn't have to line up. The fact that I have a man's body, well, actually, I'm not really a man. I understand myself to be a woman. You might look at me and think I'm a man because I'm dressed this way, and physically I am, but actually I understand myself to be a woman, and it all becomes very confusing. But everybody's story is unique. Now, this might make you ask the question, is any of this real? Is this actually real? And it's important to say, yes, it is real in the experience of people. There are people who have gender dysphoria. There are people for whom this is a very real and painful struggle. And we have to acknowledge that and understand that. But at a deeper level, we're asking the question, is it true that you could be a man trapped in a woman's body or, or a woman? Does that correspond to ultimate reality? Where do we go with that? Well, other people are asking this question, not just Christians. So this opinion article in the Los Angeles Times is saying, are gender feminists and transgender activists undermining science? What does science tell us about what's real and what's true? Well, it tells us that there are differences between male and female brains. So yes, not everybody conforms to the, the standard, but on average, women are wired for empathy and men are wired for systematizing, okay? Now, if you're married, you've probably experienced this. I don't get her. I don't get him, okay? There's a fundamental... Now, of course, we all vary, but there is a, there's clarity increasingly in science that men and women are different, not just physically, but in how we think, how we feel, how we process things. And so the question is, are gender feminists, people who are denying all difference, denying the realities? Again, are transgender activists denying the statistics? If 61 to 88% of children don't carry on feeling this way into adulthood, why is it that they're pushing further and further for children to be identified as transgender? And this is coming in in education, as some of you who may be teachers may be aware. What are we doing to our children? 
If rather than saying, let's talk this through and then wait and see, we're actually going to a place where many people are saying, let's encourage them to think of themselves as transgender, to dress as that, to live that out. Again, these two individuals, Lawrence Mayer and Paul McHugh, reviewed all of the research on sexuality and gender, and they, they published it on an online journal. And they've come in for considerable criticism from the LGBT activists on this because they say it's not a peer-reviewed journal and so on. But actually, if you read what they say, it's very, very measured. They're asking questions. And the problem is some activists don't even want the questions to be asked. They want to shut down that discussion. But these two eminent psychiatrists and statisticians, they say these things are not evidence-based. There is very clear evidence that, that people who identify as homosexual or transgender have a significantly higher rate of mental health problems. Depression, anxiety, uh, eating disorders, uh, etc. And the standard line that is given is that's because of social pressure, because of lack of acceptance and so on. But actually, there is no evidence to say that it's only to do with that. And in fact, there's a growing body of evidence to say that it's not just to do with social pressures, that these ways of thinking in themselves may be harmful to our mental health. Now, that doesn't solve the problem, how do you help somebody? It's just saying, what does the evidence actually say? And yet we're being told, no, this is normal and healthy and, and acceptable. Secondly, there's no evidence for the claim that homosexual and transgender people are born this way. The, the question of why does somebody become same-sex attracted or identify as transgender is a huge one in itself. But the bottom line is that we simply do not know. There may well be some genetic factors, some factors in terms of development, some social factors, but the idea, which is generally pumped out, and I think Lady Gaga popularized it, isn't she, born this way? That idea has no basis in the science. No clear basis. And they say, yet despite the scientific uncertainty, drastic interventions are prescribed and delivered to patients identifying as transgender, and this is especially troubling when it's children. Now, they're simply asking questions, and yet they've, they've, they've come under attack. Underlying that, of course, and this is uh, talking now about sexuality, Yarhouse and Tan, Christian uh, authors writing about this, but from a psychologist's perspective, say that the assumptions that underlie the idea, now notice what they say, experiences of same-sex attraction signal who you really are. That's where, of course, this is. It's not just that I am attracted to people of the opposite sex. I am gay. That is my identity. Or it's not just that I feel myself or struggle with the feeling that I'm caught in the wrong body. I am transgender. Do you see the, the, the shift there? But there's an assumption going on there that says that my feelings equal who I am. Do you see what I mean? My feelings and my experiences are actually a, a, an indicator of ultimate reality and truth and identity. That's what they call a gay explanatory framework. It carries a number of assumptions about personal identity that people tend not to argue for. They just assume it. 
So the whole issue of identifying people as LGBTI, whatever, well, not the I, but whichever of those it may be, is actually saying something in itself that, that feelings tell us who we are. Do you, do you see that? There are assumptions underlying it. And these assumptions, of course, relate to what we could call a worldview, how we think about life, how we think about ultimate truth, how we answer the kind of questions that are on the screen. Where did I come from? Who am I? What is right? What is my goal? Where am I going to? And the reason that this idea of identity coming from feelings is so prevalent is because of how people think about these kind of questions. What is my goal? Our culture increasingly tells us my goal is happiness and fulfillment and happiness is based on being true to myself. You recognize it, don't you? That's what's being pumped out so much in the media. That, that, that's, what, that's what the goal of life is. Try and have the happiest life that you can. The most fulfilled life that you can. And how do you get that? You have to be true to yourself. Well, what is right then is be having free choices. Autonomy. The worst thing is if somebody is imposing on you their view of who you are and what you should do. Free choices are good. Who am I? Well, that comes from the idea that, that I am my feelings, my experiences. There is an inner self that I have to discover. Self-actualization is the term that's used for that. That I'm, I'm realizing who I am, I'm discovering who I am, and then being true to this inner identity. But of course, all of that rests on the, this, this belief that ultimately, where am I going to? Nowhere. After death. And of course, if I'm going nowhere after death, then, then having the best possible life now and being as happy as possible now becomes the ultimate good. Do you see that? Because there's nothing beyond it. And of course, I didn't come from anywhere either. Life doesn't ultimately have meaning or purpose. It just has the meaning and the purpose that we find in our experiences and in our relationships. And therefore, if somebody can find love and acceptance... Why would you deny that to them? Now you see how this really relates to what we fundamentally believe about reality and about life. And sorry, over the top of that is the word autonomy. Fundamentally, autonomy is key. Being free to make the choice that is right for you, whatever anybody else thinks, so long as you don't impinge on somebody else's autonomy. Okay? And that is a huge value in our culture. Now, where do we go biblically with this? Well, what is a Christian view of any issue? I'm going to suggest that it is a biblical view. A Christian view equals a biblical view. That's an assumption in itself that I'm not going to try and defend or argue for. But I believe that scripture is God's revelation to us. So if we want to know what is genuinely, ultimately true about any issue, we've got to look at the word of God. But of course, scripture speaks in different ways and we have to recognize that. Scripture includes poetry, the Psalms, for example, which express faith and struggles. And so when it comes to issues like this where people are really struggling, the Psalms are really important because they can help people express those struggles and also express their faith in God. We shouldn't forget that part of scripture. Scripture also contains story or narrative Stories of individuals who had their struggles and their questions which resonate with us 
in our experience, and we should be thankful for that too, because that's part of how God teaches us. But scripture also contains a big story, the gospel that comes from somewhere, that goes somewhere, that has a turning point in the center, which is Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, from creation to the new creation, the great story of scripture. And then, of course, Scripture within that story has principles of right and wrong, commands, promises, statements of truth. Sometimes people reduce Scripture to one of these things. As evangelicals, maybe our temptation is to go straight for the principles, and those are important. But we shouldn't lose sight of the other aspects of Scripture. Increasingly, people are talking about the narrative, the story. But of course, that runs the risk of losing sight of the principles. But I'm saying this because as we approach Scripture, we have to think about how we do that, both within the church and as we speak to the the, the world around us. There are principles in Scripture about gender and sexuality. There are statements in the Old Testament law that very clearly say to Israel that uh, same-sex sexual activity is sinful, And that expressing your gender out of line with your sex identity is is an abomination, is the word that's used, to the Lord within Israel. Those are very clear statements within, of course, the whole of the law that God gave to Israel. And what you need to see, of course, as you read this, is that Scripture doesn't make a distinction between your gender and your sex. Scripture works on the basis that, that you are man or woman, male or female, and that your behavior should line up with that. And so, so it's it, same-sex activity or cross-dressing and so on in the Old Testament law are wrong for God's people. And in the New Testament, there is no change in that pattern. It's not as if, well, the Old Testament is restrictive and tight and the New Testament becomes more liberal and accepting. Again, within the lists of sins uh, that Paul includes, he includes same-sex activity. And in, in Romans 1, he, he makes it clear that this is a, a sign of departure from God. Not the only sign, not a sin in a category of its own, the worst sin, but an indicator in a society of departure from the worship of God and from God's truth because people are given over by God to their desires. Now, I'm not going to look at those passages in, in depth. I'm happy to engage on that afterwards. But I am going to say, I know there are folks who will say, no, these passages can be interpreted differently. But I honestly believe that in order to do that, you have to jump through such hoops that actually you're, you're robbing Scripture of, it, of its, its meaning. In my mind and in my reading of that, there is no doubt that actually the New Testament is carrying on the Old Testament's perspective that these are not in line with God's will. These behaviors are sinful. And we have to read Scripture on its own terms. Of course, that raises questions about the authority that we give to Scripture. Uh, some people might say, well, look, sure, it's Paul who's writing about this. Paul has his hang-ups. Jesus didn't say this. But to drive a wedge between Jesus, who actually upheld the whole Old Testament law anyway and said that he had come to fulfill it and not one part of it would go away. So Jesus did speak about it because he upheld Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But to drive a wedge between him and the apostles, of course, leaves us with no Jesus anyway. Because we only know Jesus through the writings of those who knew him. 
So we can't do that. We have to accept the authority of the apostles as well as Christ when they speak on these issues. So scripture contains principles, statements of truth, which guide God's people as to what God expects in our behavior and what is sinful. But when it comes to listening to people who are transgender or who identify as transgender, rather, and who identify as as, uh, LGBT, listen to to how Rebecca Root, who's an actress, um, spoke about this. She herself identifies as transgender. She writes... Although the word word transgender has only been used for the past 40 years, as a community, we've been around for thousands of years. An umbrella term for people who feel their real gender is different from their birth gender, transgender people are referenced in almost every major religion and society. And then she continues, she says, often considered the forgotten and underrepresented component of the LGBTI community, for decades we've been vilified, ridiculed, and misunderstood by many in society. However, a recent seemingly insatiable media interest in the subject is helping to pull us out from the sidelines and placing them firmly in the spotlight. But is this enough to translate to a shift in attitudes? Now, listen to what she's saying. Listen to how it feels for her from within this identified, self-identifying community. It's a story of oppression. It's a story of vilification, jokes at our expense, laughing at us, marginalizing, driving it underground, an oppressed minority. And who are the oppressors? Who are the oppressors? Mainstream society, but very especially the church and Christians. And we need to understand how that feels on people's own terms for them. And we need to understand and acknowledge actually that we, maybe not we individually, but the church collectively may have contributed to that in some of the ways we have spoken. Uh, and in some of the, the, the verbal abuse and the laughter and the joking and the kind of, uh, we need to repent of that and leave that behind. We need to acknowledge that. We also need to understand how this feels to people in terms of their story, because their story is one of liberation, being set free, now being free to be who we are. Whether that's historically accurate is another question, of course, but actually this is how it is experienced and felt. It's a very powerful story, and there are films and media and and accounts of people's stories that tell us it repeatedly, and we hear it from people that we know and love. And we have to understand how that feels to them. Glenn Harrison, who writes on this issue, he he says, the sexual revolution that began in the 60s isn't held in the popular imagination as a list of facts, laws that changed, or statements of truth. It's held as a story. And it's a story of the freeing of the human spirit from the stifling shame of Christian tradition. In response, we often deploy complicated arguments or list the deviances and diseases. It doesn't work. We've got to tell a different story, a better story, he says, that appeals to imagination as well as intellect. To go back to what I said about scripture earlier, when it comes to the commands of Scripture, the statements, I think we as Christians, those of us who are Christians, as, as God's people who recognize the authority of Scripture and of God, it should be enough for us to read what Scripture says about what is sinful, enough in terms of what we believe about the issues. But telling the world this is an abomination or this is sin means nothing if you don't know who God is. 
It means nothing if you don't believe that God exists. And it certainly doesn't draw people to the person of Jesus and the hope that is found in him. When it comes to how we communicate to the world, we've got to tell a better story. I think Harrison is right. Although I would add to what he says, and he's written his book. I've got a copy here, and I think you can buy it out in the bookstall, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. The only thing I would say, and it's not a criticism of him, but I would have to add to that two suggestions. One, that it's not just a better story, it's a true story. You see, the, the gospel is not always a convenient story. The Bible is not always convenient. It's not always better by our judgment, but it is true. And of course, the truth is better, even if it's not comfortable. It's a good thing to know the truth, and it's a good thing to rest in God's truth. It's a good thing to realize that God cares about these issues, and God has an opinion, and that God knows better than I do, because the gospel, of course, challenges my autonomy and says, no, God knows better. So it's the true story, which isn't always convenient and isn't always judged to be better by others. And that story includes the fact of right and wrong and sin and judgment and so on. But also, the ultimate goal is not human flourishing. That's a language that comes from psychology and, uh, and originally from Greek philosophy. But the ultimate goal, of course, is God's glory. And God's purpose. And the gospel calls us, this true story of the gospel calls us to to stop thinking of the world as being fundamentally centered on us or increasingly on me and my understanding of reality, but on God and his good purpose and trusting that he is good. And so, ironically, Human flourishing, what is good for us ultimately comes whenever we stop making that the main thing that we seek and make God's will the main thing that we seek. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and let him add the other things that we need. Now that doesn't make it easy or simple, but we've got to talk about these underlying stories, the underlying values and a gospel perspective. And this is simply how I summarize the gospel in five movements in the story. Not five points in a sense, although it is, but five movements. The gospel starts with a God who rules and he rules in creation and he created male and female and he created us differently. The fact that we have male and female bodies is not an accident of evolution, a convenient way to get on with reproduction or to mix up our genes so that our children have a better chance of surviving. Okay? It is God's good design. God could have done it differently. He could have made us all the same, I've no doubt. And that we could have reproduced without two people involved in the process. But he designed us in a world where there is male and female and that is a good thing. And marriage within that is actually an enactment of God's covenant love. Let me explain that. The New Testament and the Old Testament tell us that God's love for his people is something like the love of marriage. Although that's the wrong way around. Because did God love his people first? Or did God institute marriage first? He loved his people first, didn't he? In other words, marriage is something like 
the love of God for his people, not the other way around. It's not that the writers of the Bible were struggling to find a way to describe God's relationship with his people and thought, it's kind of like marriage, let's throw that in. No, God wove marriage between a man and a woman into our experience, not our universal experience, but our experience of society. Not that everybody has to be married, but it's there to teach all of us, whether we're married or not, something about how God loves his people. And God's love for his people is not a love between two people who are exactly the same, is it? It's a love that between two people who are not exactly the same and yet who are committed to one another in a covenant relationship that marriage is meant to mirror. But the story continues, we rebelled. And so we turned away from God and sin has caused delusion, false ideas, confusion at a personal level and a societal level, rebellion, including bringing abuse and distrust between the sexes. It's right there in Genesis 3 that Eve now begins to to have these confused feelings. There's distrust between Adam and Eve. And then also it says that, that there'll be this kind of controlling power of the husband over the wife, which of course has been hugely destructive in history where women were treated as less than men which they were never intended to be and it's right that we understand that scripture challenges that and says no actually men and women are absolutely of equal value but they're different but sin has mixed it up and messed it up and so of course we experience confusion in our own feelings Some of that may be from the genes that I have which are are affected by living in a fallen world. Some of it might be the experiences that I have, the, the, the nurture that I've had. All of these things are imperfect. And so my feelings and my thoughts are not a reliable guide to truth. They're just not. And that's not just for people who experience same sex attraction or. Uh, transgender feelings, it is for all of us. One of the challenges here is how much as Christians do we buy into this cultural idea that feelings signal truth? They don't, biblically speaking, because some of them are true and some of them aren't. Some of them are in line with the dignity that we have as people created by God. But I can't just say this is all that I experience. Therefore, it must be right and natural and true because I am also a fallen person. And we all struggle with this in different aspects of our character and our personality. Uh, But then, of course, the story continues. God redeems. There is forgiveness and restoration of relationship through Christ, through the cross. Forgiveness for the past and hope for the future. And then the story continues that we respond to what God has done in Christ in repentance, not covering up our shame and our sin, but coming into the light of God and saying, look, I don't even know what's right and wrong here, but God, I know you do. And so I turn away from my autonomy to embrace you as Savior and as Lord and to live positively as male and female, single or married, In the hope of the future, which again we saw in 1 Peter yesterday, the living hope of the future inheritance, because I know that this life is not the end. 
I'm living for, in the Spirit's help, in the present, and in the community of God's people. Brilliantly, I'm not alone in my struggles. I have a community of people who love and who also confess to having struggles and to being human. And we live together with this in hope of the glorious future, the inheritance that God is leading us to whenever those struggles will be gone. Now, that creates a different perspective, and it gives us different answers to these big questions than the culture that we live in. I should have said at the beginning, by the way, all of these slides are on the website, so don't worry if you're trying to scribble them down. Where did I come from? I was created by God. Life has a purpose because God created us, and he loves us. Who am I? Well, I'm a mixture of dignity created in the image of God, reflecting that so that I am a wonderful thing. You are a wonderful thing. Whatever struggles you have, you are a wonderful, beautiful thing because God loves you. But the way you are and experience life is not solely what God created you to be. It's also affected by sin, your own sin, the sin of others, and just the effect of living in a fallen world. And so there is depravity in us as well. And yet, what is right? Well, what is right is to turn away from what's wrong. Feelings, thoughts which don't correspond to truth. To repent of those, to believe the truths of Scripture, what God has revealed, and to live in obedience to that. That's the path to a good life. What is my goal in this? Well, it's not self-actualization or happiness. Although I wonder sometimes, personally, in my own life, how often do I make it about pursuing happiness? And we can't talk to people who are struggling with the issues we're talking about today if we ourselves are actually fundamentally just pursuing the happiest, simplest, easiest, best, most fulfilled life that we can have. That's not what it's about, is it? It's about becoming like Christ. The pursuit of godliness. And that involves denial of self. And it involves pain. And it involves dying to self. And it involves struggles which sometimes we will experience healing and progress in in this life. And sometimes we won't. We'll struggle with them lifelong. But the story doesn't end with that because we know that the day is coming when we enter into glory. Our inheritance and we are made exactly what we should be and restored fully into the likeness of Christ. That's the gospel. But I hope you see how that changes how we think not just about gender and sexuality, but about everything. And so as we then think specifically about this, this simple line, and I picked this up from my friend Gilbert Lennox, who tells me he picked it up, I think, from Alistair Beggs. We have a Lord. If you want the one-sentence answer to the big issues of the age, the difference between us and the world is, I have a Lord. I have somebody else who knows better than I do. I have somebody else who I seek to obey and follow. I have somebody else who I entrust every thought and feeling and emotion to. It doesn't take them away always. certainly doesn't. But I entrust them to him. And I seek to be obedient to him and to follow him. So how do we respond? And I've completely run out of time and you'll forgive me. And if you need to go, please do and pick up children. And I encourage you to get the recording. But I just want to say something very quickly about how we respond. We need to think about how we speak. I think I've said enough about that already. Speaking truth 
but not in a in a in a way that is laughing or making light of things or or dishonoring other people. We love the brotherhood. So in our churches, we love one another with a deep, committed, passionate love from the heart, in humility. But that love is about forgiveness and about acceptance. But the acceptance is based on forgiveness, which is based on unity in the truth. And so it's not enough to say, well, we accept people. We do accept people as they are. We start, we love them. But of course, that's in a growth towards the truth that is based on repentance from what is wrong. And so the New Testament, yes, says you, some of you were this, Paul says to the Corinthians, but they have repented and turned away and are living in obedience to Christ. And where that obedience isn't there, then it becomes an issue of breaking fellowship. Not lightly, because we love these people, but because actually we have to testify to the truth. And there is no unity if it is not unity in God's truth. We need to think about what does the Bible say about sex rules. I've called them that rather than gender rules because the Bible doesn't recognize the distinction. What is it? Now, of course, we have all of our cultural constructs. A man is into football. I'm not. (laughs) That's a major social handicap. A man acts this way and whatever. These are cultural and social. and, And we do people a disservice when we allow those to dominate in our churches. When all of our youth work for, for, for boys is based around football. What are we doing to young people who don't fit that cultural norm? But there are things in scripture that do go along with the sex differences. Very obviously, uh, having children <laughs> biologically is there. But what does it mean in terms of our roles in marriage and in the church? We can't avoid those things, but that's not the subject for this seminar. But there is a lot that scripture says. So what I would say on that, though, is if, if we end up at a place where we are saying there is no difference, then I don't think that could possibly be biblically faithful. So there has to be some difference, but there's lots of discussion and exploration about what that difference is, okay? We need to honor everyone, and that means we start where people are because their value doesn't depend on how they define themselves or how they live, or what they preach or teach. They are loved by God, created by God, created in the image of God. They have been died for by Christ. And so I honor them, and people, when they encounter us, whatever they believe, should know that we see immense value in them as a person. Honor them. And that, I think, means we have to recognize the realities. If somebody has transitioned surgically, they're not able to reverse that, at least certainly not easily. So we start where they are. If somebody uses a name that doesn't align with their biological sex, I think we honor them by using the name that they use for themselves. That's not dishonoring Christ in any way. And the pronouns, pronouns his, her, him, her, whatever they use, because we're honoring them in their worth as a person. We should listen and seek to understand. We can't prejudge. This is a complex area. Everybody's story is different, and we need to listen to their story and understand that and distinguish between their feelings and their actions. It's an incredibly important thing, you know, that you you suddenly, somebody tells you, I feel this way, I experience this, and you're thinking, oh, no, this is, but actually, what have they done? How are they living? It's different if they're saying, "I, I feel this, but I'm not living that out, and I need help not to. Or if somebody's saying, this is what I have done. We need to make that distinction because feelings 
are not sin. At least, these are not necessarily chosen things. It's not that somebody has chosen to feel this way or to experience this. That is something that is there as part of their experience. We listen and we understand that on their own terms. We don't rush in to judge or to speak. But I think the biblical response should be to seek to align with biological sex. And I say that partly because there is no evidence that transitioning to the opposite sex solves anything, ultimately. It may in the short term help the person to feel better and reduce the feelings of dysphoria, but actually there's very little evidence to say that that has long-term lasting benefit. It's just shifting the goalposts, but the struggle is likely still to be there. But the one point that is fixed is the biological sex. And it seems to me that to say that your feelings are stronger and greater than the physical reality is problematic. The physical reality is there. So let's try and help to align the feelings as far as possible with that. For some people, they may experience that they're able to do that. For others, it may be a constant struggle. But I think that's the, the, the basic principle that I would, I would suggest. And then as we do that, let's promote the biblical vision. Let's tell the gospel. Let's frame these struggles and issues that we have. This is true in all pastoral issues, isn't it? Let's frame that within the great story from creation to new creation, the hope of glory, the reality of the present help of the Spirit, the reality of the pursuit of godliness, the call to repentance and to faith, the beauty of Christ in his perfect humanity, the glory of God in creation and in redemption. Let's tell the gospel. Let's draw people to Jesus. Let's remind ourselves of that. And let's respond in the right way depending on what the issues are. If it's dysphoria or intense feelings of same-sex attraction, then let's give help and healing for pain because those feelings in themselves are not sinful. So do not judge those as sinful and condemn the person because they experience that, but walk with them in their pain and help them to seek healing as far as possible within that. If it's about attraction, then it's about resisting temptation. So the feeling and the attraction is not sinful, but acting on that is, biblically speaking. Denying desire, seeking transformation where possible. If it's about actions, then there is repentance for past sin, and there is choosing faithfulness and persevering in a loving community. And we've got to get much better as communities in supporting people with these real struggles. And some of those who write on this very helpfully expose just how bad we can be as the church sometimes in helping single people, for example. And so we don't create a real alternative to happy marriage or even those who are childless and so on. We've got to get much better at recognizing the diversity of people's experiences, whether that singleness is chosen or not, whether it's because of a desire to be faithful in the face of these these emotional feelings, the same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, or whether it's not, but loving communities. But when it comes to identity, I would say we should resist the idea of defining identity in terms of LGBT. I'm not saying that we jump in on somebody who uses those terms, but as I speak about it, I find it more helpful to talk about same-sex attraction 
somebody who experiences that rather than somebody who is gay. Because I don't think it makes sense to define somebody by their emotions, biblically speaking, or their experiences, whether it's in this area or any other area. They may feel it's part of who they are, but I'm, I'm not dishonoring them by saying I don't agree with that judgment. I'll talk to them on their terms, but I want to redefine the conversation. And so I think as Christians, we should make that distinction. So rather than a transgender person, somebody who experiences uh, gender dysphoria, okay? Um, and correcting unbiblical ideas that feelings equal identity. But the deeper question, and I will finish with this, and you've been very, very patient, those who are still here. I think the deeper question for all of us as Christians comes down to how we relate the scriptures to our lived experience and particularly our feelings. And I've hinted at this earlier that I think one of the challenges we face in these areas and one of the reasons as evangelicals that folks are shifting is because actually how we tend to live our Christian life is so based on feeling and on experience. Now, please don't misunderstand me. We all have experience. If you don't, you're dead, right? And experiencing God is good. And feelings are good and they're important. But they're not a reliable guide to truth. And they're not the ultimate guide to identity or to the will of God. They need to be discerned. There are facts. There is faith. And there are feelings. And when I was a young Christian, I was taught that they should go in this order. And I think it's still right. So you let the facts guide your faith and then you interpret your feelings and seek your feelings to be changed and, and shaped on the basis. That's not easy at all. For some people, these are very deep, deep and painful things. But we have to say, actually, God's revealed truth in scripture is the guide to what is right. And let's seek to follow that with faith in God, with commitment to Christ. And we do this encouraging one another in it. And ironically, Matthew Paris, who himself identifies as homosexual, is the one who a few years ago wrote this article that says actually God wouldn't have approved of, of uh, gay bishops, as he put it. And he says, inclusive, moderate, or sensible Christianity is itch inching its way up a philosophical cul-de-sac. The church stands for revealed truth, he says. He's not a Christian. And divine inspiration, or it stands for nothing. Belief grounded in everyday experience alone is not belief. Jesus wasn't reluctant to challenge received wisdoms. He gives no impression that he came to revolutionize sexual morality. He's right. Revelation, therefore, not logic, must lie at the heart of the Christian church's message. You can't pick and choose from revealed truth. And that's a non-Christian writing, but I think he's absolutely right. And so we've got to say, actually, let's have confidence in that as we seek to work through these issues together.